We are in the midst of a series of messages on the amazing story, specifically of the Old Testament, that teaches some things about the Lord. And over this course of several weeks that we started and then took a break to cover in detail the life of Elisha, we've looked at some truly amazing stories. Now, people use that phrase, amazing, a little too much, right? Amazing means to be put in awe or to be awestruck or something that wouldn't ordinarily happen. I mean, people are calling lots of things amazing, like football games, not Tennessee's, but other people's, right? Even when a team that's supposed to win every game gets beat by a freshman from Texas and all of the nation rejoices, that's really not amazing, all right? Amazing is something completely unexpected, out of the ordinary, and unexplainable. And over these last few weeks, we've looked at some of those. We talked about Joseph last week, and God's using him throughout, through difficulty, and using him to bring about God's plan. We talked about Noah and the ark, and David and Goliath, those great Sunday school stories of the past. And... If you remember, we have one more week of this series, and I want you to help me. I want to know the story that you want to hear about. And I gave you several ways last week to do that. There's the, uh, you can do it through Facebook, you can do it through uh, Twitter, or you can do it through my email, or you can write on your, uh, just in your order of service, that Tear off parts, you can take that, leave it in your seats on your way out. I can tell you right now, it is about a ten-way tie. Ten stories have all gotten one vote. So, you can't stuff the ballot box. I know who's voted, alright? So, don't send me four or five. But, if you know friends and you know you've submitted one, you're thinking, well, i got to get mine said. Then you might want to get your friends to submit but we are going to talk any, here's the rules again, any Old Testament story that you find amazing that we have not already covered. Alright? That's the key. If you want to know what we've covered, you can ask me or get on the internet and look at our past sermons or any of that. Alright? Today we're going to talk about a story in Scripture that I was first introduced to on an Easter weekend when I was very young. And I was introduced to it not by my pastor, not by my Sunday school teacher, but by this man. See if we can.
All right, we could just let it play probably for the rest of the time, and that'd be okay, but we're going to stop it. All right, how many of you remember that? Doesn't it look good in HD up on the screen? It looks good, doesn't it? It looks better than my 24-inch uh, uh, black and white TV that they let me have in my room. Right? I never understood why they, um, you know, Easter was the high Christian holiday, and they played the Ten Commandments. Do you remember that? It was ABC, wasn't it, that played the Ten Commandments every year. I think they still play it around that time. But uh, I was introduced to this concept of Moses splitting the Red Sea. Isn't it amazing, too, when you look back on that? Without computer-generated graphics or any of that, the special effects that they did. I don't know whether you know this or not, but Moses, who is an infinitely fascinating character in Scripture, is the subject of one of the next films by a guy named Steven Spielberg. He just got through with Lincoln. He's got another project in the works, and then Moses is on the horizon for him. He's going to redo the story of Moses. Now, I, um, most people are saying he's going to be pretty accurate, but we'll see. Moses is an amazing life, right? Well, just tell some of that. Besides the Red Sea, what are some things that happened to Moses? The burning bush, right? The bush that was burning on fire without burning up. That's kind of amazing, right? Saved in the basket from the very beginning. It was, you know, it's amazing how there are, you know, how you read the Old Testament and then you find examples in the life of Jesus, but he was saved when there had been an edict put out that all were supposed to be killed, right? Kind of like in the New Testament with Jesus and What's also Egypt is where did Jesus go to be saved in the New Testament? Where did his dad and mom take him? Egypt, right? Took him to the same place that Moses was. Just kind of an interesting thing. So he's put in the basket and he's put down the river and he gets, but he doesn't just get picked up by anybody, right? He goes right into Pharaoh's household. Right. In fact, uh, there was an animated film several years ago about the life of Moses called The Prince of Egypt. Because he was raised in that environment. What else? Yeah. I mean, you just think about those the plagues that he was a part of bringing. He turned the water into blood. He brought the locust. And, you know, it, every time we have that cicada thing, you know, just think about how bad it was for the Egyptians with the locust everywhere. And brought the... the it culminated in the... Um, Death of the firstborn of the Egyptians. What else? He led them right up to the edge of the promised land, right? He couldn't lead them into the promised land because he was a part of that generation that refused and because he had acted impatiently uh, before the Lord on an occasion. And so he didn't go, but he led them right up into, right? He had that moment on Mount Sinai when he received the Ten Commandments. He had the Passover meal where he had instituted, just think about this, Moses was the one that was given the instructions that instituted the meal that we still celebrate parts of or symbolically to remember that Jesus died for our sins. He's kind of an important guy, right? And the most important moment in his life comes at the splitting of the Red Sea. Now, there is no way, as good as Cecil B. DeMille is, or Steven Spielberg will be, there is no way that you could ever depict the amazing splitting of the Red Sea with any sort of accuracy that would show the amazement to the people that day. 
They were caught, as someone has said using the old phrase, between the devil and the deep blue sea. The devil as in the incarnate evil that is displayed in Pharaoh and the deep blue sea that was the deep blue sea, right? Even though it's the Red Sea, I guess you call it the deep Red Sea, alright? And so you have this moment. Now what I want to do today is I want to look just briefly at this story and find three real principles for us that the reality is none of us have ever experienced anything like this. None of us. But we have experienced moments of decision that will determine what the future of our lives will be. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about making major decisions. We talked about Elisha striking the water. Another one of those moments when the water splits, which, by the way, I find it interesting that there are several occasions in Scripture where rivers split or the waters part, and God never does it the same way. Sometimes he has him step in carrying stones. Sometimes he strikes the water with the cloak. Sometimes he just lets his breath come and fill it. But the point is, God was doing miraculous things. We've not experienced this, but we will experience moments when major decisions are there. In fact, for Christians and for churches, there is a constant need to find ourselves at these points of moving forward with the Lord. The question is whether we'll do it or not. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. I want to walk through the first few verses of this after we recognize that this amazing thing happened. If you look in verse 21, if you're in chapter 14, it says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea with a powerful east wind all that night and turn the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. Here's another little quick thing there. How long does it say it took? All night. How long did it take in Cecil B. DeMille's there? We, about 15 seconds, alright? So, that's Hollywood magic for you there. So the waters were divided. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. So we know and we recognize that there is this miraculous, amazing story of the waters parting. But what I want to focus on is what comes before that. And ask the question of you individually and of us as a congregation, whether as we stand on the edge of what God intends for us, we are willing and able and ready to move forward, or if we are content and satisfied with where we were or where we are. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. They're moving along. They've left Egypt. This is a pretty cool thing, you know. Everybody around, they're like, whew, I'm glad we got out of there. I mean, that was a tough time. And they started, you, you know how sometimes you share war stories with people? You're like, I remember when. They were probably already sharing. Well, I'm glad to be rid of the guy that was over me. Because you know what he made me do? I, I found it interesting. My dad was here for the women's event this weekend. And he was an elf. How many, how many of you were elves? We had elves in here. We had Dalton, I know, was an elf. Glenn back there. Yeah, I got some stories on Glenn from my dad. But my dad said his, one of his favorite things about the night is all the guys got in a room and they started sharing war stories of what it was like to grow up poor. You know, like, well, I remember back when. Now, let's all be honest. They probably weren't as poor as they said they were, but it's good to remember. It's like, you know, the I walked to school uphill all four ways. You know, those stories. 
So they're traveling along. Everything's going good. Moses has got these people. Moses has just gone through ten plagues. He is probably drained, but he feels some um, just relaxation. We're on our way. We've got this crowd. It's good things going. And chapter 14, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of whatever that is. P-Haharath. Between Migdal and the sea, you must camp in front of Baal Savon, facing it by the sea. Sounds like, okay, we can do that. Verse 3. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. At this moment, Moses is probably, wait a minute. We're out of there. He let us go. What, what, what? You're telling us to turn back and find a place where we can get so that Pharaoh will pursue us? You, you want us to turn around and go right back to where we were so that this king of Egypt and his army will come after us? I don't quite understand. Sometimes we have to realize that God knows exactly what He's doing even when we don't have a clue. Right? Amen? Listen, we we had a little event this week as a nation. Amen? And we're not here to talk about politics. I will tell you this. I, I am amazed in the wake of something like that. Of the amount of people that suddenly think God has lost control of what's going on in the world. Now, they don't say that way. But they sure sound like it. They sure act like it. He's in control and He tells them, I want you to turn around and invite them to come after you. I want you to stick your hand in the crocodile's mouth to see if he'll snap. And here's what I want you to realize. One of the things that's important, and we're going to see some things laid out for us here in the next couple of minutes. Whenever we stand in our lives, preparing to look into the future, what God has for us, there are certain things that we have to remember. And the first thing we have to remember is we have to remember the reason. And when I mean remember the reason, I don't mean remember the reason for the season that we're about to enter. I mean remember the reason for it all. Look what he says. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Who's going to harden Pharaoh's heart? God. This isn't the first time he hardens Pharaoh's heart. He does it several times. Why? Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Now, a short-sighted individual would say, if you were Moses, God, I really don't care what the Egyptians think. I want to be safe. I really don't care what everybody else thinks. Let's just keep, you know... We're on a good pace here. We ain't got any problems here. We're going well here. My people are satisfied. God, let's just, let's just, you know, we don't need to stir the hornet's nest. God says, no, that's not why you came out. This is what I love. The Israelites didn't come out of Egypt for their own safety and security. They came out to be a testimony to the glory of God. Now let me tell you this. As believers... We are not in this world to find a place where we can bunker down and be safe and secure while the world around us goes to Hades. We are to be an example for the glory of God where we live and where we work. 
And you have to say in yourself, the glory of God is more important than absolutely anything in my life. It's more important than my family. It's more important than my friendships. It's more important than my career. It's more important than my church. It's more important than my social standing. It's more important than my politics. It's more important than my money. It is more important than anything in our lives. It's more important than getting the same pew every week or the right Sunday school class or having everything exactly like I want it in my church. It's more important than having things like I've always wanted them. The glory of God is the important thing in our lives. God says He's going to put them in grave danger for His glory. Some people say, I don't know that that's really fair, God. Why are you playing games with the Israelites' lives for your glory? Well, here's the thing. Now, they didn't have this, but we have it in the New Testament. We really can't be upset when God asks us to do anything out of the ordinary when He sacrificed His own Son for His glory. Amen? And we have to say, above all else is God's glory. What happened when Moses did this little turn around, and the Egyptian army started coming. People get excited about that. Woo! We get to demonstrate God's glory again. Is that what they did? Alright! It's time! We get to show off a little bit more. God's going to show up. What do they do? They complain, right? I know this is hard to believe, but the people of God complained. Criticized. Wondered out loud what is going on. Verse 10 says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and saw the Egyptians coming after him. And the Israelites were terrified. Word there means terrified, alright? Cried out to the Lord for help. They said, and I love how, you know, this is about as passive aggressive as you can get in complaining to the man God has appointed. Were there no graves in Egypt that we could have died in? You took us out here to the wilderness. What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you? You ever heard of the I told you so crowd? Yeah, you have. You're acting like you had. You've heard of them, right? Waiting for something to go bad. Leave us alone. <laughs> Leave us, Moses. This has been fun. We've had a fun little time here. You go ahead. We'll just stay behind. We'll beg for mercy. We'll go back to where we were. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Do you know what the Red Sea crossing is really about? It's really about two things. First of all, it's about the glory of God. Being demonstrated to people who thought their gods were the best. And God says, they don't even exist. Secondly, It's about the choice that is consistently before the people of God to stay where we are, go back where we were, or move forward to where God intends. That's our choices. And to stay where you are and to go back where you were are not God's intentions. I think I've told you, or some of you at least, or maybe all of you this story, but when Susan and I got out of seminary, we interviewed with three churches in three days. We interviewed in Ripley, Tennessee on a uh, July 4th week. We interviewed on a Thursday. We interviewed in Trenton, Tennessee on a Friday. And we uh, 
interviewed in D. Queen, Arkansas on Saturday and preached on Sunday in a church that had experienced a fire, so I preached in a nursing home to a church. That's, that's kind of a, in, wasn't in view of a call, but a trial sermon in a nursing home is a little different. On Friday, we met with this church in, outside of Trenton, and, and some of you I've told the entire story, but I'll just tell you a small part of it. But we were meeting with the group, and I mean, Susan and I, here's the truth. We were seeking God's will, but I didn't have a job. And so any job was a good job at that moment. We were praying through, we were seeking the Lord, but we sat down, and I sat down, and there, were, there was a, a group of six that were on the search committee, and a... Um, they had a seventh member that couldn't be there because he had something. But there were seven people, and it was a church of 50 people. When you have seven out of 50, that's a pretty good cross-section of the church. Now, I remember talking to them and having conversation, and one of the questions I ask in every interview, though those three days, is a question I ask of Alan, who was chairman of our pastor's arch committee here, and the group that was here. Those are the only four I've ever uh, interviewed with, and I ask this question every time. What is your vision of this church in five years? And I remember sitting in that little church in Trenton, and when God says, this is not the church for you, was one of their answers was, we really wish it could be like it was 20 years ago. Now, here's what I appreciated about that, is most search committees think that, but they just won't tell you that. That guy was honest. There are a lot of people in a lot of churches across this land Man, I just wish it could be like it used to be. I just wish. Sometimes you even get together in groups and you talk about it and you reminisce about it. And boy, remember when? Man, why can't it be like it was? These Israelites were afraid for their lives, but they were also afraid, I believe, of what was ahead. They had security in slavery. Now that sounds strange, but it's true. They said, let's just go back. And I love what Moses says, first of all, in verse 13. Don't be afraid. Are you serious? Have you seen the army? We're not an army. We don't have any weapons. Have you seen the army coming after us? Don't be afraid. There are... More things not done in the Lord's name because people are scared to act in the Lord's name. They're afraid to be bold in the Lord's name. And the truth is, our level of expectation has lowered to the point that things that we claim to be bold steps for the Lord aren't even really bold steps for the Lord. They're just simple obedience to Him. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. See the Lord's salvation. He's going to provide for you. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. Moses was fed up. Stop! Don't you remember what happened with the Lord back then? He's moving us forward. Don't want to go back? Trust Him. Stop and see. He will fight for us. We don't need an army. He will do it. And then I love how He turns to the Lord apparently and starts to pray. And here's the last thing that you have to do when the Lord has you at that moment of decision is the Lord says to Moses, Be quiet. 
and move. That's what he says. In fact, the Bible kind of uh, cleans that up a little bit. Most translations says, why are you still crying out to me? What he says is, Moses, be quiet. Tell him to break camp, get your staff up, start doing what I've told you to do, and watch as I do what I always said I will do. The question, consistently before you as a believer and us as a congregation, is whether or not we will remember the reason we're here. We will not be afraid and we will move. Can I tell you something? A church will never move forward without its people moving forward. A congregation will never move forward without the individuals that making it up moving forward. Some of you in this room have given lots of years of service at this location, and for that we are grateful. But we need you as we move into a phase in this country, in this city, in this nation's history that we haven't faced in a long time of trying to carry the gospel to people that don't know what the gospel is and desperately need it. The thing that startled me about the election this past week wasn't the top of the ticket and what happened there. The thing that startled me were measures across this country that were on the ballot that had never come close to passing before on things like same-sex marriage and legalization of marijuana and other moral issues that passed for the first time ever. Now, can I tell you something real quick? That doesn't make me go into chicken little mode. You know chicken little mode, right? The sky's falling, the sky's falling. Let's all gather together in our bunker. And it tells me that the opportunity for evangelism is like it has not been in years in this country. But it's not going to happen if we're constantly thinking about how we go back to where we were. Can I tell you something? We're not. We're not going back to the 1950s. We're not going back to the 1970s. We're not even going back to the 1990s. We're moving forward. And as believers, the question you have to ask yourself, and as a church, the question we have to ask ourselves is, will we say we will not be afraid and we will move? If we don't, 30 years from now, this church 20 years from now, maybe 10 years from now, will not be making near the impact it is today if God's people don't move with God. Let's pray.